Welcome back to Roshcast, episode 41. This week's appearance of Puxatani Phil means we must be getting close to the in-training exam. I'm Jeff Nussbaum. And I'm Nachi Gupta, and we're back with some more high-yield emergency medicine review. As we get closer and closer to the in-training exam, now would be a great time to go back and listen to old episodes to brush up on some of the core EM knowledge you may not come across regularly on shift. To get started, let's talk about septic arthritis, which is one of the more rare pathologies that we see. What is the most common bacteria that causes septic arthritis in healthy adults? Staph aureus is the most common cause of septic arthritis in adults. And which bacteria would be associated if you're talking about a patient with splenic dysfunction? In a patient with splenic dysfunction, the strep species are more likely to cause septic arthritis. And which clues would tip you off for a diagnosis of septic arthritis? Septic arthritis classically presents with fever, monocular joint pain, and a decreased range of motion of that joint. So now you've tapped the joint and sent fluid to the lab. Which lab results help you clinch the diagnosis for septic arthritis? Joint aspirates with a white count over 50,000 with more than 75% PMNs are indicative of septic arthritis. Perfect. Why don't you load up the first question? Looks like we're starting with some hematology this week. Which of the following hematologic disorders is characterized by intermittent venous and arterial thrombosis, splenomegaly, and abnormal proliferation of all three myeloid cell lines? Is it A, aplastic anemia, B, chronic myelogenous leukemia, C, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or D, polycythemia vera? Hmm, let's do this by process of elimination. Choice A, aplastic anemia, that's characterized by anemia, leukopenia, and thrombocytopenia, the opposite of what we're looking for here, so that's out. Choice B, CML, that's associated with a marked increase in the leukocytes, but not the other cell lines, so that's also out. Choice C, DIC, that's a consumptive coagulopathy, certainly not the case here. That leaves us with choice D, polycythemia vera. Great logic, and you're right on all accounts. Polycythemia vera is a chronic myeloproliferative disorder, which is typically marked by increased red blood cell mass, but occasionally can involve all three cell lines. On lab work, suspect polycythemia vera in those with abnormally elevated hemoglobin levels. That's over 18 in men and over 16 in women. And on microscopy, you would expect erythromegaly. Clinically, patients may present with puritis, especially after bathing, headaches, bleeding complications such as epistaxis, engorged retinal veins, splenomegaly, and gout. Do you recall how we treat this? Polycythemia vera is treated with serial phlebotomy or with myelosuppressive agents. Nice. Why don't you load up the next question for me? Which of the following pairs are matched correctly? Is it A, elevated direct bilirubin and Gilbert syndrome, B, elevated indirect bilirubin and cholestasis, C, elevated transaminases with an ALT to AST ratio of greater than 2 to 1 with alcoholic hepatitis, or D, elevated transaminases with AST and ALT both greater than 10,000 with ischemic hepatitis? I'm going to go with choice D. An elevated transaminases with an AST and ALT over 10,000 is associated with ischemic hepatitis. That's absolutely correct. And this question gets into LFTs. Let's discuss how each plays a role in clinching a diagnosis. First up, we have the AST and ALT. An AST to ALT ratio of greater than 2 is often associated with alcoholic hepatitis, whereas an AST to ALT ratio of less than 1 is usually associated with hepatocellular necrosis. Alkaline phosphatase, or ALKFAS, is typically elevated in hepatocellular and cholestatic disease, where significant elevations are more often associated with cholestatic disease. Children and pregnant women may also have mild baseline elevations. 
GGT may be elevated with alcohol, phenobarbital, and warfarin use. Concurrent elevations of ALKFAS and GGT are often indicative of cholestasis. Bilirubin is up next. Bilirubin is a breakdown product of proteins. It comes in two forms, unconjugated and conjugated, or indirect and direct. The liver is responsible for conjugating bilirubin. An elevated indirect bilirubin may be due to increased production, as seen in hemolysis, or with decreased ability to conjugate bilirubin, as seen in Gilbert syndrome. An elevated direct or conjugated bilirubin is associated with any disease that blocks or slows the secretion of bilirubin or bile into the intestine. And lastly, we have prothrombin time, or PT. You can expect an elevated PT when the liver has decreased protein synthesis of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Great, so to get back to the answer choices, I already mentioned Gilbert syndrome. That's associated with an elevated indirect bilirubin, not an elevated direct bilirubin. Choice B, cholestasis, that's associated with an elevated direct, not indirect bilirubin. And lastly, choice C, alcoholic hepatitis, you'd expect an elevated AST that's about two times that of the ALT. Great review. Let's get on to the next one. This one is super high yield, so listen closely. Which of the following conditions can result in refractory hypokalemia that is not correctable by the administration of potassium? Is it A, hypermagnesemia, B, hypernatremia, C, hypomagnesemia, or D, hyponatremia? You're looking for choice C here, hypomagnesemia. This can result in refractory hypokalemia that's not correctable by the administration of potassium. That's right. Clinically, hypomagnesemia can have a number of effects. Neurologically, it can result in tremors, tetany, seizures, weakness, apathy, delirium, or coma. Cardiovascularly, it can cause a prolonged QTC, a widened QRS, as well as atrial and ventricular dysrhythmias. Lastly, it can also lead to abnormalities of calcium metabolism, resulting in hypocalcemia, hypoparathyroidism, parathyroid hormone resistance, and a decreased synthesis of calcitriol. The cardiovascular effects of hypomagnesemia are so important since we often give drugs that can be quite dangerous if the patient already has a low level. Absolutely. That was quick, so I have one more for you, and it's wildly unrelated. A 29-year-old male is brought to the ED for a gunshot wound to the right chest. He has a right-sided hemoneumothorax. A tube thoracostomy is performed with immediate drainage of 250 cc's of blood. The chest tube is connected to suction and the chest radiograph confirms proper placement. You note an absence of respiratory fluctuation of the fluid level in the drainage tube. A repeat chest x-ray shows that the right-sided hemothorax remains. Which of the following is true regarding this finding? Is it A, an air leak is present? B, the lung is still collapsed? C, there is a blockage of the drainage tube? Or D, this is an expected finding? Okay, so let me summarize. We have a guy with a hemoneumothorax with an appropriately placed chest tube connected to suction without respiratory fluid variation and with residual hemothorax on x-ray. Choice A, an air leak, that would present with constant bubbling, so that can't be right. With a collapsed lung or choice B, you wouldn't expect variation in the fluid level, so that's probably not it either. Choice D, an expected finding, with an appropriately placed chest tube, you wouldn't expect residual hemothorax without respiratory variation. So that leaves choice C. There's a blockage of the drainage tube. Nice work. Let's review some chest tube basics since I don't think we've ever gone over that. Chest tubes have two essential components, a one-way valve to allow air and fluid out and a suction mechanism to increase the rate of drainage. When functioning correctly, the height of the fluid level in the drainage tube will fluctuate with each respiratory cycle. If there's a complete absence or a decrease in the drainage, the system is either blocked or the lung is fully expanded. That makes sense, and since there is a residual hemothorax in our patient, it must be blocked. Can you define an air leak before we move on? 
Sure, an air leak refers to bubbles in a third chamber found in most commercial chest tube drainage systems. Bubbles in this chamber indicate that there is either air leaking into the drainage system itself from a loose connection or there's persistent air inside the pleural space. Great review. Let's move down the body into the abdomen for the next one. We're going to talk about pancreatitis. Which of the following is true regarding Ranson's criteria? Is it A, a score of 0 to 3 on admission constitutes a high-risk population, B, a glucose level greater than 200 on admission is associated with a higher mortality rate, C, a hematocrit less than 35% at 48 hours is predictive of mortality, or D, a white count less than 10,000 is associated with a higher mortality rate? Hmm, let's go through this one one by one. A low Ranson score is unlikely to be associated with high risk, so choice A is out. Choice D, that's a normal white blood cell count, so I doubt that's associated with higher mortality. That leaves choices B and C. I seem to recall the hematocrit was based on a percentage drop over 48 hours rather than a cutoff of 35%, which is nearly normal anyway. That leaves choice B, a glucose over 200 on admission, is associated with higher mortality. Great way to work through a tough question where you might not have all of Ranson's criteria memorized, but since we're talking about it, can you list the laboratory admission criteria included in Ranson's? All right, so that's age over 55, white blood cell count over 16,000, glucose over 200, LDH over 250, and an AST over 250. And what about 48 hours after admission? At 48 hours, we have a drop in the hematocrit of greater than 10%, a BUN rise over 5%, a calcium less than 8, a PaO2 less than 60, a base deficit greater than 4, or lastly, fluid sequestration over 6 liters. And remind us, how do we interpret these criteria? Each of the criteria represents one point. A score of 0 to 2 is associated with a 1% mortality, 3 to 4 is associated with a 15% mortality, 5 to 6 is associated with a 40% mortality, and finally, a score of 7 is associated with a 100% mortality. And one last related question. Do you remember what Cullen's sign is? Cullen's sign is a discoloration around the umbilicus indicative of hemorrhagic pancreatitis. Although it's not included in Ranson's criteria, that still sounds like it portends badness. All right, we're going to change gears entirely for this next one. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Law of 1986, or EMTALA, requires hospitals to provide which of the following? Is it A, care to all patients? B, interpreters for all patients in a timely manner? C, screening exam, competent ED physicians, and appropriate stabilization? Or D, screening exam, stabilization process, and appropriate transfer process. This question is really important both for the in-training exam and your clinical practice. MTALA requires choice D, a screening exam, stabilization process, and an appropriate transfer process. That's right. MTALA is a section of the Consolidated Omnibus Labor Act, or COBRA, of 1985. It governs how physicians triage, register, examine, work up, treat and or stabilize, discharge or transfer, utilize resources, and involve medical staff expertise when caring for patients who present to the ED. And as the answer suggests, any person who presents must have an appropriate medical screening exam. If the exam reveals no emergent condition, the laws of MTALA no longer govern that patient's care. MTALA neither requires interpreters, as choice B suggests, nor stipulates on the competency of physicians, as choice C suggests. And lastly, MTALA is not just a rule for those with government insurance. MTALA applies to all patients, regardless of payer status. Although you may not realize it, each of our daily actions in the emergency department is ultimately governed by MTALA, so it's critically important to understand. All right, you're up for the last one of the day. 
Back to some core EM. A 58-year-old man with cirrhosis presents with abdominal pain and fever. His abdomen is tender to palpation and with guarding. You're concerned for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. You perform a paracentesis and send the acidic fluid for analysis. Which of the following is most consistent with a diagnosis of SBP? Is it A, a low acidic fluid glucose concentration, B, a PMN count less than 250, C, a serum ascites albumin gradient, or SAG, less than 1.1, or D, a white blood cell count less than 1,000? Very important topic, especially at our liver transplant center. The answer here is choice A, a low acidic fluid glucose concentration. That's right. SPP occurs in those with advanced liver disease due to increases in portal hypertension, leading to bowel edema and then bacterial migration from the GI tract. Patients usually have fevers, chills, and abdominal pain. It's diagnosed with an elevated acidic fluid PMN cell count over 250 and a positive acidic fluid bacterial culture, all in the absence of secondary causes of peritonitis like a bowel perforation. Right, and because PMNs consume large quantities of glucose, a low acidic glucose concentration is associated with SBP as well. And the treatment is with a third-generation cephalosporin, such as cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. All right, so that's it for the new material for this episode. Let's close out with a rapid review. Polycythemia vera is a chronic myeloproliferative disorder marked by increased red blood cell production, but can involve all three cell lines. Polycythemia vera can present with puritis, especially after bathing, headaches, bleeding, engorged retinal veins, splenomegaly, and gout. Treatment is with seroflavotomy and or myelosuppressive agents. Gilbert syndrome is associated with an elevated indirect bilirubin. Alcoholic hepatitis is associated with an AST to ALT ratio of roughly 2 to 1. In ischemic hepatitis, you would expect elevated transaminases over 10,000. Hypomagnesemia can result in refractory hypokalemia not correctable by the administration of potassium. Hypomagnesemia can lead to a prolonged QT, a widened QRS, as well as atrial and ventricular dysrhythmias. With respect to chest tubes, an air leak occurs when there is persistent air inside the pleural space. An absence of respiratory fluctuation or a decrease in drainage of a chest tube implies that the system is blocked or the lung is fully expanded. Ranson's criteria is a scoring system designed to predict mortality from acute pancreatitis. For a review of the criteria, head over to the Roshcast blog at www.roshreview.com slash blog. Emtala, enacted in 1986, is a section of the Consolidated Omnibus Labor Act. It governs how physicians triage, register, examine, work up, treat and or stabilize, discharge or transfer, utilize resources, and involve medical staff expertise when caring for patients who present to the ED. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is diagnosed with an elevated acidic fluid PMN count over 250 and a positive acidic fluid bacterial culture, all in the absence of secondary causes of peritonitis like a bowel perforation. SBP is also associated with low acidic glucose concentrations and is treated with a third-generation cephalosporin. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 41. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and the words. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review, and you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us on iTunes and leave comments to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review. 